Thank you for listening to this podcast brought to you by Reach Life Church in Asheville, North Carolina. Our mission is changing life by making, growing, and unleashing gospel-centered disciples of Jesus. For more information, resources, or to connect with us online, visit www.reachlifechurch.org. Well, this morning we are continuing in a teaching series that we've entitled The Big Picture. This is actually going to be the last message that we have in here for a time as we are moving to the launch. We're going to be preaching some different messages for the next two weeks. And then on October the 29th, we're going to jump into the book of Luke. So we're going to be spending some time going through the gospel of Luke. But this morning, we're going to be in the book of Esther, and we're going to be examining the life of a Jewish woman by the name of Hadassah, which is, she's better known by her Persian name, Esther, which means star. This is who we named our own daughter after, Esther. And uh, the title of my message this morning is The Message of Esther, with the subtitle, The God of Astonishing Plot Twists. And, you know, have you ever noticed that we have a deep love for stories? Have you ever noticed that? Um, I believe that we have a deep love for stories because that's how God created us. He wired us to love stories. Uh, That's why we have movie theaters. And uh, that's why our kids beg us when they're little, please read me one more story before I go to bed. That's why when I'm preaching and, uh, you know, I can just see you guys like zoning out. If I tell a story, all all of a sudden everybody's back in to the game. That's one of the things that uh, you're taught as a communicator. If you want to uh, keep people with you, if you want to hold their attention, and if you want them to remember what you've taught, teach with stories. Now, we don't want to be a church that just gets up here and just teaches with stories, but we do want to be a church that teaches with stories that helps you to remember the Word of God. And, And, you know, we love stories, especially true stories, with astonishing plot twists. Um, Like today's true story that's found in the book of Esther. And just to give you a little bit of contextual background on this book, the book of Esther is the last of the historical books in the Old Testament, and it was written by the Jews to explain the origins of the the Jewish feast of Purim. And like the book of Ruth, which I mentioned earlier in in, uh, this morning, the book of Ruth, just like the book of Ruth, it's a true Cinderella-like story that takes place in the Medo-Persian Empire, After the time, listen, when the first wave of exiled Jews had returned to Jerusalem. Remember, we talked about that last week, that some of the Jews returned to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. That's during this season. These are Esther and Mordecai and the rest of these uh, Jews are the ones that did not return to Jerusalem yet. And one of the the most interesting features about this book, if you read through it, you'll notice that there's no outright mention of God. In the entire book. His name is never mentioned. You never see the word, the name Yahweh, Lord, or God. But listen, if you have eyes to see, if you have eyes of faith, his fingerprints are clearly all throughout the entire story, even though his name is never overtly mentioned. And just so you'll know where we're, we're headed this morning, I want to tell you that the first thing I want to do is simply walk through the passage. I want to tell the story of Esther. Then I, I plan to, at the end, I plan to take a, uh, share a quick takeaway from this narrative. And then third, I want to show how this book fits into the big picture of the Bible, how it is, it's used to point us to the person and the finished work of Jesus. Y'all with me? 
All right, let's begin. Once upon a time, in a kingdom not so far away, there lived a Persian king by the name of Ahasuerus. And this king, Ahasuerus, he reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces. He was a very powerful king. And in his third year, in the third year of his reign, he gives this big feast. He's very proud of all that he is over. And so he gives this big feast to all his officials and servants, and he showed them the riches of his glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days. The scriptures say for many days, which was 180 days. Six months he sets aside and just shows everything he has. Now, if you know anything about the book of Daniel, you'll remember that King Nebuchadnezzar, who took the Jews into uh, exile, he had this vision of a large statue, which, which I have a picture here. You can see that the head was a head of gold. See that? And you see that there was a breast of, of silver. Okay, I don't know what's going on here, but there is supposed to be a picture up here. All right, I will tell you what it was. There was a head of gold. There was uh, the breast of silver. His belly was uh, thighs of brass. His legs were of iron and his feet of iron and clay. Now, each one of these sections represented a future kingdom. So the head of gold represented King Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom, which was conquered by the Medes and the Persians in 539 B.C. Now, the silver, the silver kingdom, this is King Ahasuerus' kingdom when he was, that he was ruling over. And so after 180 days were completed, the king ends everything with one final uh, grand finale of seven days of drinking and feasting. Now, they were already drinking and feasting, so I don't know why it says that they, he gave seven more days, but he ends it with seven days of drinking and feasting, and in his drunkenness, he does something very foolish. He summons his beautiful wife, Queen Vashti, and he, he brings her before all of, of his guests to show off her beauty, wearing her royal crown. Now, I don't think he was doing this to honor his wife as much as it was to honor himself. He was wanting to show how beautiful his wife was, like a, um, a trophy queen. And she, we don't know why, but she refuses to come. And apparently this humiliates the king. And in his anger and under the counsel of his wise men, he, he ends up signing this irrever irreversible edict to remove Queen Vashti from her throne. So he dethrones the queen. That's chapter 1. And in chapter 2, we read this in verse 1. After these things, when the anger of, the, of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Now, it seems like what's going on here is that the king is now in this sober state of mind. He's not angry. He's not intoxicated. And he's, he, he, he's thinking, man, what did I just do in my anger? He, he regrets, it seems like, what he did. And that's why the word of God teaches in James 1, 19 and 20, to let everyone be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Anybody convicted right now of this? I want to read that again. Let everyone be quick to hear, 
slow to speak, slow to anger. Why? For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Don't make decisions, especially big life decisions, when you're angry. And King Ahasuerus made a rash decision in his anger, and he couldn't bring Vashti back and reconcile their marriage because, and here's why, the law of the Medes and Persians stated that every royal decree by a king was irrevocable. It could not be changed. And so in verse 2 we see this in in chapter 2. It says, Then the king's young men who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king. And let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins virgins to the harem in Susa, the citadel. And let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king. And he did so. So the king's men proposed, why don't you go throughout the kingdom and have an empire-wide beauty pageant? And from whichever woman that is most beautiful, virgin that is most beautiful to you, make her your queen. And that's what he did. And this is where we are introduced to Mordecai and to Esther. Verse 7 says, Mordecai was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle. So these two are cousins. For she had neither father nor mother. Now notice this. I want you to see this. This is important to understand. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. Why? Because God created her that way. Don't miss God in this. God created Esther to be beautiful to look at. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. Now, right here, we can already see that Mordecai is a man of character, taking on the care of Esther after she's being orphaned. And in verses 8 through 16, we learn that the king, that uh, as the king was assembling his harem, Esther gets taken into that harem. And in verse 17, it says, after Esther went before him. It says that the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Instead of Vashti. You know, just like that, Esther goes from being a common Jewish girl to the queen of the world. And that reminds us about what God can do. God can do anything. And he can do it in an instant. Now in verse 19 it says, Now when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Very likely Mordecai was one of the king's officials. And in verse 20 it says, Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her, for Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. We can see here that Esther knows how to come under authority. And probably for her safety, for reasons of safety, Mordecai told her, do not, do not tell anyone that you are a Jew. In verse 21 it says, In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai. 
And he told it to the queen. And he told it to Queen Esther. And Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on gallows, and it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. Now, we need to make note here what just happened. Mordecai just saved the life of the king. It seems like he remembers the command in Jeremiah 29, seek the welfare of the city. He's not trying to overthrow the Persian government. And so he saves the king's life. But just like the butler, remember the butler back in Genesis when, when uh, Joseph was in prison? He forgot him. It seems like the king forgot him too at this moment, at least right now. In chapter 3, verse 1, it says that after these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the gates, king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning to him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to Haman. Now why? Why did Mordecai disobey the king and not pay homage to Haman? The, the text actually, if you look at the text, it doesn't say, say why. And there are some who have suggested that Haman may have presented himself as a god before the people. That would have been uh, very common in that day that leaders would see themselves as gods and expect to be worshipped. And therefore, Mordecai refused to transgress the first and second commandment about uh, serving and bowing to other gods. That could have been a reason. We're not sure. But, but we do know that it's, it wasn't because that Mordecai was an insurrectionist who opposed authority. We know that because we just saw that he saved the king's life. I, believe, I do believe that it was connected to his Jewishness. There was something about that relationship with Haman that if he bowed down to him, he would have been, um, he would not have been able to do it with a clear conscience. And what we see here is that this did not sit well with Haman. Verse 5 says, And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. That word fury could also be uh, poison or venom. He was filled with poison towards Mordecai. But he disdained or he decided it wasn't enough to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. Now this, this dude is, he's beyond angry, isn't he? This dude is psycho. Um, he's, he's, he is wanting to not just punish one man, he's wanting to to punish his entire people. And when it says that he sought to destroy all the Jews of the kingdom of, a, of Ahasuerus, we need to keep in mind, this included the Jews back in Jerusalem who were building the temple. This is through that, throughout the entire empire. And so Mordecai's actions reveal the hatred that Haman had, not just for him, but for all the Jews. And we need to understand that this man... It was more than, it's not just Haman that we need to be aware of here. This man was controlled by Satan. 
We've got to keep this in mind as we're looking at the big picture because Satan knew the promise of God. He knew that God was going to send a Savior through the Jews. And so his goal is to stamp out the bloodline of the Messiah so that the promised Savior, promised Messiah would not come. And so Haman, we need to realize, is just a puppet in the hand of the evil one. And so what Haman does is he goes to the king and he convinces him that the Jews would be a, a deadly threat. And he persuades the, the king to sign an irrevocable edict to terminate all the Jews that are living in the kingdom. And so after sealing this edict with the king's signet ring, in chapter 3 it ends with, in verse 15, the couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king and the decree was issued in Susa the citadel. And the king and Haman sat down to drink. They are happy with their decision, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. Now, humanly speaking, humanly speaking, there is no hope for the Jewish people. And that's, again, that's because an edict that was sealed with the king's signet ring could not be revoked. Humanly speaking, there is no hope. But keep in mind, let us remember what we learned last week. In Ezra and Nehemiah, that God keeps his word. He keeps his promise. And God promised Abraham, God promised David, that the Savior of the world would be Jewish. And so the question is not, will God save his people? The question is, how? How is God going to save them? Well, let's keep reading in chapter 4, verse 1. When Mordecai learned all that had been done... He tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. And eventually Queen Esther hears the news and Mordecai instructs her. He says, go to the king and beg for his favor. Plead with the king on behalf of the Jews. Now notice, this, I believe Mordecai was a man of faith. He knows that God is for them. But he doesn't just sit around and go, you know, God's going to save us. He does what he knows to do. And Esther sends a message back to Mordecai, basically reminding him. She's like, you know, I want to help, but you know that if I go to the king and he hasn't summoned me, if he hasn't given me an invite, he could put me to death. It's like signing your own death warrant, unless there was one thing that could happen. The king could hold out his golden scepter, and then that says uh, that he's extending grace. But we need to understand that there's no guarantee that this would happen with, with Esther. And in verse 13, Mordecai says, Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, look at this, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews. He knows God's promise. He knows the Jews will be saved. It will arise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows? Who knows? Whether you have not come to the kingdom. This is one of the most famous passages in the, in the book of Esther, who knows that you have not come to the kingdom for such a time 
as this. You know what Mordecai is saying? He's saying, Esther, God's purposes will stand with or without you. Do we realize that? That God's purposes will stand with or without us. He doesn't need us. I love what Alistair Begg says. He says, the purpose of God, the purposes of God are greater than the obedience or disobedience of one person. God's purposes are going to stand with or without us, but he does. Here's the amazing thing. He invites us to be a part of what he's doing. And it's like Mordecai is saying to Esther, it seems to me that God may have put you in this place because he wants to allow you to be a part of what he is doing. But if you're going to be a part of what God is doing, you've got to get off the fence. You can't stay neutral. You have to engage. And you know, church, I think that that's where we can be sometimes as disciples of Jesus. Jesus wants us to be a part of what he's doing, doesn't he? He's invited us to be, make, grow, and unleash gospel-centered disciples for, of him. But in order to do so, we have to get off the fence. You know, Jesus wants, through us, he wants to bring relief and deliverance through us to others. Somebody brought that relief to us. Someone taught us about Jesus. And this morning, he, he is calling us to be in this community or wherever he has you planted. It might be for you to, to, to befriend that classmate that no one else will talk to or that coworker that's difficult that needs to hear about Jesus or maybe even just your next door neighbor. And the thing that you're thinking maybe is, what will it cost me to do that? That's what Esther was thinking. You might be thinking, what if it cost me my job? What if it costs me my reputation, that promotion? Well, let me ask you this. What if they come to know Jesus? Would that be worth it? I think there's a, we can all agree that it would be worth it as we share the Lord and someone comes to see Jesus. And you know what's really encouraging to me about Esther in this situation is that initially she didn't want to go. But... She changed her mind, as we see in verse 15. After she heard what Mordecai said to her, she said in verse 15, I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. And this is where, listen, church, this is where we all need to be when it comes to serving the Lord. As it's been said, I would rather die in obedience than live in disobedience. So Esther is that is that is that that place where she will go before him, and after three days of fasting, she goes courageously before the king, and God gives her favor, and he extends the royal scepter to her, and he asks her what she desires. In verse uh, chapter five, verse four, Esther said this: "If it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king." And so what happens is the king summons Haman and they go to the feast. And in verse 6 it says, And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, What is your wish, 
it shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Even to half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Esther answered, My wish and my request is... And then she stops. She doesn't plead for her people. She, she stops. And, and she says, Hey, my request is for you to come back tomorrow for another dinner. And many people have asked, why? Why did she do this? Maybe she got cold feet. Uh, maybe she sensed that her timing was off. Uh, we don't know exactly why. We don't know exactly why Esther did not go ahead and ask for the king to save her people. But we do know that God uses this pause. Because we see in verse 9, And Haman went out that day, joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. And so Haman is filled with anger and wrath, and he goes home and tells it uh, to his friends and his wife. And his wife says, hey, you know what? I've got a great plan for you. Why don't you build gallows 70 feet high and then tomorrow, have the king hang Mordecai on it. And he's like, that's a great idea. And he goes about doing that. Now again, humanly speaking, it seems like the situation for the Jews is get, keeps getting worse and worse. But we have to remember that God has a plan. And in chapter 6, as we'll see, the plot begins to twist. Verse 1. On that night, that's important to understand. On that night, the king could not sleep. It's not the night before. It's not the night after. It's the very night that Haman is building the gallows. The king could not sleep, and he gave orders to bring books of memorable deeds and they were read before the king. And listen, it just so happens that the king reads about how Mordecai had saved his life during the assassination. And he asks, what was done for Mordecai? And they tell him nothing was done for him. Now at that same moment, Haman, who's excited about crucifying or hanging Mordecai on these gallows, enters into the palace. The king is thinking about Mordecai, and Haman is thinking about Mordecai, but they're thinking about them on different uh, places. Verse 6 says, And the king said to Haman, What shall be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to him, Whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then the king said to Haman, Good idea. Hurry, take the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so to Mordecai, the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. 
Leave nothing out that you have mentioned. Now, clearly the tide is turning. And can you imagine the look on Haman's face when he heard the news? Can you imagine the look on Mordecai's face as he's riding on the horse? Uh, what's to be done for the king, the, the man that honors the king? Say it a little bit louder. I didn't hear it the last time. Do you see how the tide has already begun to turn? And Haman is totally and absolutely humiliated. And in verse 13 it says, And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but you but will surely fall before him. Now, while they were talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. Now, under God's sovereignty, we can see that everything is beginning to unravel for Haman. And at the feast, the king again asks Esther what she desires. In verse 3, it says, Then the queen answered, Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted for me. Uh, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. Verse 5, Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he and where is he? Who has dared to do this? And Esther said, A foe, an enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went to the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that the harm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from the palace garden to the, to the place where they were drinking wine. As Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was, and the king said, Will he even assault the queen in my presence, in my own house? As the word left the mouth of, of the king, they covered Haman's face. Judgment. No, no more explaining. It's over. And soon afterwards, they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. It says, then the wrath of the king abated. Now, at this point, Haman is dead, but it's not over because of that edict that was signed that had gone out to the 127 provinces to put all the Jews to death. That was still in effect. And so what happens in chapter 8 is the king gives Mordecai the power to write an opposing edict. And this opposing edict gave the Jews permission to take up arms and to defend themselves against anyone who sought to harm them. And so instead of being annihilated, they were saved. And in chapter 8, verse 17, it says that many from the peoples of the country declared them, themselves as Jews. When they saw what was happening, they said, we, we want to be Jews too. For the fear of the Jews had fallen on them. Now, you talk about... An astonishing plot twist. 
And, you know, there's, there's a lot of lessons that we could learn from this account in Esther. But I have only one that I want us to grasp this morning. If we could just grasp this one lesson, and that is that God is actively and sovereignly ruling over the affairs of his people. If we could grasp that this morning, you know, even when we can't see God, when we can't seem to hear God, when things are dark around us, when we can't sense his presence, God is actively and sovereignly ruling over the lives of his people for his glory and our good. But this is something that we need to be reminded of. And it's something that you have to have faith for, to see God. Hebrews eleven twenty seven says, By faith, by faith, Moses left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith, church, we see him who is invisible. And, you know, if you, this morning, if you don't have eyes of faith I, to see God, I want to encourage you to just ask God to reveal himself to you. But if you don't have eyes of faith, eyes that can see the invisible God, then this account of Esther to you might just be another story about happen chance. I like what Mark Dever writes. He says, if, if you don't believe in God's active sovereignty, then, and there's a, a whole list of things I want you to see here, then Esther just happens to be Jewish. And she just happens to be beautiful. Esther just happens to be favored by the king. Mordecai just happens to overhear the plot of the kings against the king's life. A report of, of this just happens to be written in the king's chronicles. Haman just happens to notice that Mordecai does not kneel down before him. And he just happens to find out that Mordecai is a Jew. Esther just happens to get the king's approval to speak. But then she happens to put off her request for another day. Her deferral just happens to send Haman out by Mordecai one more time, which just happens to cause him to recount it to his friends. They, in turn, just happen to encourage him to build a scaffold immediately. So Haman just happens to be excited to approach the king early the next morning. It just so happens that the previous night, the mighty uh, king could not command a moment's sleep, and he just happened to have had a book brought to him that recounted Mordecai's deed. He then happened to ask whether Mordecai had been rewarded, to which his attendant happened to know the answer. Haman happens to approach the king just when the king is wondering how Mordecai should be honored. Later on, the king happens to return to the queen just when Haman appears to be pleading with Esther in a way that can be misconstrued. The gallows Haman built for Mordecai just happens to be ready when King Xerxes wants to hang Haman. Now, you can believe that. You can believe in, in happen chance or in faith. We can see that God is actively and sovereignly ruling in the affairs of his people. We can see his glory. We can see his love by faith. We can see his wisdom. We can see his care. And one other thing that we need to see this morning is that the story of Esther is our story. 
Because we're just like the Jewish people who couldn't deliver themselves from the irrevocable edict that was written against them to put them to death. Now, the, the irrevocable edict that was written and that stood against us, it was not written by Haman. It wasn't even written by Satan, but rather by God himself, which says in Ezekiel 18.20, the soul who sins shall die. And, you know, we all know that we have all sinned. We all know that we have all fallen short of what God requires and that we deserve to die. And just as the Jewish people needed a representative to go before the king on their behalf, we needed a representative. And Esther is a picture of Jesus going before the king to plead for the life, lives of his people. Now, for sure, Esther went before the king not knowing whether or not she was going to perish. Jesus went knowing he would, that he would die. And though the irrevocable edict of the law stood against us, condemning us to eternal death, God wrote an opposing edict, and his name is Jesus. And what I want to point out here in Esther chapter 9, verse 1, it says, On the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, look at this, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. And that's exactly what happened at the cross. Because just as Satan, the enemy of the true Jew, the enemy of the king of kings, just as he thought that he had gained mastery over Jesus by putting him to death, the reverse occurred. Because as we know, on the third day, just before dawn, God raised Jesus from the dead, and Jesus gained mastery over our enemies. He gained mastery over Satan. He gained mastery over our sin. He gained mastery over our judgment that stood against us. He gained mastery over death. And through Jesus, the irrevocable edict of the law was overthrown by the opposing edict of substitutionary atonement. The righteous dying for the unrighteous. Jesus in our place. Amen? Amen. Amen. So God is the God of astonishing plot twists and reversals. So listen, I just want to end with this. Because we know that through what Jesus did for us, because we know that without a shadow of a doubt, I want to encourage you, wait on the Lord. If you're in a situation like I started out this morning that you're, that's difficult, a place you don't want to be in, wait on the Lord. Trust in Him because as we've learned from the book of Esther, in the end, if you put your faith in Jesus, you will not be put to shame and you will not be disappointed. Amen? Amen. Amen.